0: Well, today, it's not exactly uh, a sermon as we normally expect and and hear in this place. But instead, it's an introduction to the book of Revelation itself, because I don't know if you've ever read the book of Revelation before, but it's kind of hard. Like There are lots of weird things that are going on in there. It's a piece of literature unlike almost anything else that we're exposed to in our modern world, certainly. And even in Scripture, it's fairly unique, though not completely unique. So if you're visiting this morning and you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Well, yeah, it's it's a little bit different. But we're going to be in the book of Revelation for about six months because we want to take some time to get through this and figure out as best as we can what this is about. And this morning, I want to give you an idea of where we're going to go. So first of all, when we come to the book of Revelation, how many of you have started Revelation? You've gotten a little way through, and then you set it down, and you said, no, thank you, sir. Anyone had that experience? Yeah, it's a little difficult, uh, but I want to tell us first that Revelation is worth it. It really is. It's worth it. Most of all, it's worth it because we see Jesus more clearly. Uh, when we were... Celebrating Advent in the lead up to Christmas, one of the things that really struck me this year was uh, something I read uh, from uh, a woman named uh, Fleming Rutledge. And Fleming Rutledge had said, uh, if we start with the baby in the manger, we will never understand the Jesus who comes to judge. But if we start with the Jesus who comes to judge, we'll understand the baby in the manger. And I think that's really true. We, uh, Rutledge actually says, we'll get so softened up by that scene of the baby in the manger that we'll, we'll be upset when Jesus comes back. And he says, I'm going to make everything right that's gone wrong. We need the book of Revelation and other, all the books of the Bible because they help us to see Jesus more clearly. And we're called by his name. We are Christians after Christ. We need to know him. Secondly, oh, uh, I had this neat-looking slide here. Uh, Revelation 5.5, how do we see Jesus more clearly? This is one of my favorite passages. And one of the elders said to John, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals and bring God's good future to pass. And then, of course, in the very next verse, it says, John says, And I looked and I saw something that looked like a slain lamb. Isn't that fascinating? The angel calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conqueror, and the slain lamb. We need the book of Revelation to see Jesus more clearly. Secondly, we gain insight into our modern world. Uh, This, I don't know, you probably can't read it very well, but... uh, It says, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Christ's reign has something to do with the world that we live in today. It is both future and already present in some way. And Revelation is actually a way of pulling back the curtain of history and what's happening in our world and saying, look at what God is doing and what he's about right now. Uh, This picture, by the way, uh, is a friend of mine took this on a trip we took together. It's in Pergamum, which is in southwest Turkey. Uh, And you have to go up the super cool gondola to the Acropolis. And this is a temple, the ruins of a temple anyway, that was dedicated to the worship of the emperor. And when uh, we're going to find a little later in the book of Revelation, there is a short letter to the church at Pergamum. And he says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And it's very possible that this was exactly what John had in mind when he wrote that. So, uh, so at first, we see Jesus more clearly in Revelation. Second, we gain insight into our modern world through Revelation. Third, we learn how to conquer. That sounds good, doesn't it? Uh, We live in a world that is so polarized these days. And it feels like there is no bringing the world back together. But Revelation actually shows us, if you want to be a force unifying the world, and if you want to belong to the great victory that Jesus has won for you, this is how you do it. And it's enormously surprising. Not to spoil the surprise, but but what he basically says is, you just be faithful. That's what winning is going to look like. Not overpowering everyone around you, not balling up your fists to fight, but being faithful each and every day. Do you know anyone else who is faithful each and every day and won even though he looked like he lost? There are only three answers to my questions this morning. Jesus, God, and the Bible. Which one of those is it? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. We are faithful. We follow in the way of Jesus. And Revelation tells us how to do that. Uh, I love, again, this passage out of uh, Revelation 12, 1. And they have conquered him. They have conquered the evil one. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Revelation says that's how we conquer. So let me break it down and say, what is, if we were to have a sentence or two that told us what the book of Revelation is about, what would that be? Well, the big idea is that God's people are called to a new way of life that to human wisdom looks like losing, but seen from from heaven's perspective is the only path to life and victory. Not one possible path to life and victory, but the only path to life And victory. Willingness to suffer for Christ is the path to ultimate victory. God has not lost control of the world when his people suffer. And we actually have an example of that again in who? Jesus. Jesus. I know we're Presbyterian out there, but that's okay. We can do this, all right? All of God's promises are already coming true in Jesus. Did you hear, we read that Old Testament passage out of Daniel chapter seven. Did you notice that it was repeated almost verbatim at the end of the Revelation one reading we had? Because when Jesus is coming, he is fulfilling what God has always promised that he would do. And we're already seeing the fruit of all of that now. The people who are dead and defeated turn out to be alive and victorious in Jesus Christ. Uh, By the way, uh, these three points I largely took from G.K. Beale in his commentary on Revelation, and I think he's right, because I did my own homework, too. (laughs) He just said it better than I did. uh, So what are we doing? Well, the message of Revelation, we need to follow Jesus Even the path of suffering is a path to victory. And Beale says it this way, the focus of the revelation John received from God is how the church is to conduct itself in the midst of an ungodly world. The heavenly revelation gives an entirely different perspective from that offered by the world. Believers are faced with the choice of lining their lives and conduct up with one perspective or the other, and their eternal destiny depends on their choice. Are you going to follow in the way of the Lamb, who is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Are we just going to do whatever we think is right? Whatever everyone else seems to be doing. Whatever makes sense from our perspective. Because God's way is, hey, they don't always make a lot of sense to us from our perspective, do they? When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, what's the first thing that comes to most of our minds? I know, it's not what comes to your mind. What comes to the mind of the person sitting next to you? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm going I'm to be a doormat if I do what Jesus says. It's not something that makes sense according to the current world order. But again, in Revelation, God pulls back the veil so that we can see why it makes sense after all. Now, here is a big question. The timing of Revelation. I don't mean when was Revelation written, probably at the end of the first century or beginning of the second century, but uh, when do the events described in Revelation actually happen? Now I'm going to uh, go ahead and blast through uh, two views and then focus on two more views. So first, uh, there's the preterist view. So I, I just want us to understand that different Christians have approached this book differently, and there is wisdom in all these different approaches, but they're probably not all equally correct. First view is the preterist view, which basically just means it's all already happened in AD 70 when uh, Caesar and the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and the Jews were scattered from their land. Now, there's a lot that's attractive about this because I think there are portions here that are talking exactly to that event, but I don't think that's the big idea of the book of Revelation. Secondly, there's the historicist view, which says, well, it's mostly all happened except for the second coming. The interesting thing is this particular view has existed for basically 2,000 years, you know, since people started reading the book of Revelation, and here's how it always goes. Oh, this event, and that event, and that event, they're all told in Revelation, now the only thing left is for Jesus to come. They said that 1,900 years ago. They said it 1,800 years ago. They said it 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago. Some people are saying it this year. And they're always disappointed. So I'm going to discard the historicist view, that all of these things have already happened, and now we're just waiting for the end. Now, here are the the two that we're going to want to talk about in more detail. First is the one that you're probably familiar with, the futurist view. The events of Revelation are almost entirely in the future, right? Did anyone here read Left Behind? Or see the uh, Kirk uh, Cameron's, what's his name, the movie that he made about Left Behind? Now, listen, those were some entertaining reading, if you didn't read them. Uh, The theology in them, I would not recommend. Uh, They take the futurist view, and a lot of good, intelligent, smart folks take this futurist view that almost everything Revelation is describing is still in the future. But here's problem number one with this. Uh, Who is Revelation written to? Yeah, it's it's written for us, but not to us. It was written to people in the first century, As a matter of fact, if you get into chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, you find the audience to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna, to the church in Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Laodicea and Philadelphia, those seven churches in southwestern Turkey. If all the events that the book of Revelation is describing are not just in the future, not just 2,000 years in the future, because we still haven't seen, you know, if we're futurists, we still haven't seen them happen yet. They are so distant in the future, how do they help the people who are suffering that day? This is the big problem with the futurist view, is that it sounds good until you start to remember, oh yeah, this isn't actually written to me. It was written to people in the first century. And here I am in the 21st, thinking it was all about me all along. Yeah. (laughs) So... So... The fourth view here, which I think is the best way to take a look at Revelation, is that Revelation gives a symbolic presentation of the battle between good and evil that describes the types of things the church experiences throughout history, including the truly final judgment and new creation. So here's what I like about the idealist view. I get to say yes to everybody. Right? When people say, oh, it's, it's only about what happened up to 8070, I get to say, well, it is sort of about the things that happened up to 8070. And when the historicists say, well, we've seen fulfillments, and now we're just waiting for Jesus to come back and say, you're right, we have seen fulfillments, but these things actually continually fulfill. They repeat in cycles. That's why when you're reading the book of Revelation, you will say things like, this sounds kind of familiar. I feel like we've gone through some of these things. Well, yes, we have. Because God treats evil the same way from day one until the day Jesus returns. He is always in the process of judging evil and making it right, and saving the people who ask to be saved. Uh, So this means, as we go through Revelation, we are, yes, we are definitely going to look to the future. As, As we say here, there are certain things, there is a final judgment, and Revelation describes that. But when we read about all those, you remember, there are the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bulls of God's wrath, and they all describe these horrible catastrophes that happen on earth. When we read those, we say, man, it feels like some of these things have already happened. Yes, they have, because they are fulfilled over and over again through history as God deals with evil. Does that make sense? This is a Q, you can, we can do some Q&A here if you want. Anyone have a question or something as we're talking here? Yeah, Mary, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And that's part of my job, is to show you exactly how that happens as we go through Revelation. What's that? Yeah, so uh, let's hear. Uh, at One of the judgments of Revelation, I think it, is it, uh, uh, a rider on a pale horse, and his name is Death, right? And he, he takes peace from the earth. Uh, that's pretty generic. It doesn't, it doesn't say like, in one final last battle, he ta- it just says he takes peace from the earth. And that's certainly our experience, isn't it? We see it in the news today. God is judging evil today. Evil receives its own due. It's in its nature to be judged, in a sense. By the way, we're going to print these out for anyone who wants to take this home, because also for, we don't have them today, but uh, also, for anyone who missed today, I want them to be able to go through and get an idea of why isn't Pastor Ian saying this is all going to happen in the future someday? You know, we'll have an idea of what's going on. Okay, so a little closer at the futurist and idealist views, because I think these are really the two that we encounter today, and I'm going to be teaching the idealist view. So the futurists, people who look at Revelation and say it's primarily about the future, prefer a literal understanding of the text wherever possible. Okay, so if it says, you know, rider with a pale horse, they're looking for a rider with a pale horse. Got it? The idealist instead frequently leads, leans towards symbolic understandings. Yeah, it, there's not necessarily a rider with a pale horse. Right? That's not God's point. The point is that he will take peace from earth. Uh, futurists see Revelation 119 is giving the structure of the book. I'll read that for you right here. Write, therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Get it? Past, present, future. Uh, Whereas the idealist sees recapitulation, which is just doing it over and over and over again, as a key to understanding uh, the whole book. So it's the same events described from different perspectives. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, Remember, we talk about seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of God's wrath. When they open the seventh seal, do you know what the seventh seal contains? The the seven trumpets. So the idea isn't like, here are these things that are going to happen in chronological order, on and on and on, but it's how serious is God about judging evil? Well, he's going to judge it, and then he's going to judge it, and then he's going to judge it. (laughs) So there is a symbolism there. Uh, Again, the futurists, uh, and I mentioned this It's, if you're thinking this is all in the future, it's of limited use to its original audience. Like, well, I'm glad God's going to make somebody's life right someday, not mine, apparently. Whereas the idealist uh, interpretation shows how the book of Revelation is of immediate use to its original audience and to every audience. Because it describes basic truths about the world that we live in and what God is doing. So I know this is probably the hardest one to get our minds around in some sense. Thanks left behind, right? But in any case, here's some basic ideas. Okay, the language of Revelation. And I just mentioned figurative versus, uh, or symbolic versus literal sorts of language, right? We like to read the Bible literally as often as we can. And, and that's a good thing. But, uh, let's, I think the next slide, yeah, literal versus uh, figurative language. Let me, let me ask you how you can interpret this literally. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. You ever met anyone like that? Okay. Um, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. Notice he's also calling these signs. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Folks, if a third of the stars in the sky fall onto earth, are we gonna have an earth left? Mm No. The stars are bigger than the earth, just for some basic science there. Woo, science. (laughs) The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. I told you, Revelation's weird. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. You guys got all that, right? You know exactly what all of that's about, don't you? No. This is highly symbolic, highly figurative language. And if we try and read it literally, we're doing violence to the text. It's Clearly not meant to be read, literally. Let me give you another uh, example from our own life. If I told you all hands on deck, what would you do? Would you find a deck and put your hands on them? No, because that's not the type of language I'm using. It's an idiom, right? It means everyone assemble and get ready to work. Uh, I have butterflies in my stomach. Do I really have butterflies in my stomach? No, I just mean I'm nervous. It's not meant to be taken literally. Finally, uh, a word from Jesus. And I think this is helpful too. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now I see everyone, uh, almost everyone here has two eyes in their head this morning, right? Now have your eyes ever caused you to sin? Did you disobey Jesus by not ripping it out of your head? No, because Jesus is using hyperbole. He's exaggerating. To communicate how important this is, watch your eyes. Be careful how you use them and what you expose them to because you can sin with your eyes. See, just because we're not taking language, or interpreting it literally, doesn't mean that we're not interpreting it in the way it was meant to be interpreted. The question is what kind of language are we looking at? Is it just a a bald statement of fact or is it a symbol that's meant to communicate something more than a bald statement of fact could ever do? Keep in mind also that the book of Revelation, written in the first century as Christians were being persecuted, how do you think it would have gone if Christians started circulating books that said, by the way, Caesar is not God, don't worship him, Uh, Caesar is not really your Lord, don't look to him for salvation because Caesar promised salvation. Do you think that they couldn't just pass notes like that all over the place and not gotten further trouble? No, Revelation is written, in a sense, in code, so that the Christians, you know, people wouldn't pick up their books and go, oh, we've got to get rid of these Christians. They're enemies of the state. Now, the Christians weren't enemies of the state, <laughs> but they were often accused of things that were wild and wacky. I have mentioned this before, but especially if you're visiting this morning, the three main charges that the Romans brought against the Christians were first, that they were atheists. That's really funny from a 21st century perspective, isn't it? Because they didn't worship the Roman gods. Secondly, they were cannibals because they ate the body and blood of Jesus. Third, they were constantly committing incest because they called everyone brother and sister, including their own spouses. People are like, what is going on with those Christians? So of course the Christians wrote something that was at least lightly, well, kind of heavily encoded so that they wouldn't contribute to other misunderstandings and so that they would be protected. Next, uh, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. The book of Revelation uh, is part of a genre of of literature called apocalyptic. Uh, Apocalyptic literature comes from the Greek word apocalypsis or really, where we get our word apocalypse from, which is why we called Revelation the apocalypse sometimes. Apocalypse does not mean the last day. Apocalypse means to reveal. Revelation is a, a literature that is meant to take heavenly truths and reveal them to an earthly audience. And that's why it uses this highly symbolic language. Paul, in the book of Corinthians, talks about how he had a vision from the Lord And he said, and I saw things there, things that man was not permitted to tell. And you get a sense that he couldn't have communicated in words anyway. That's what apocalyptic literature is for. Number one, code, so the Romans don't execute all the Christians for treason. But secondly, to try and communicate truths that are too deep and too great for just straightforward speaking, to communicate. You've heard the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words, haven't you? That's the same idea here. This type of literature was actually common in the ancient world, uh, and it's even in other parts of the Bible. Daniel 7-12, through 12, Ezekiel 37-38, to 38, uh, uh, Zechariah 9-14 to 14 are all examples of apocalyptic literature elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, and then uh, it's also, there are a number of uh, Jewish apocalypses written from about 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. So, uh, now let's talk about the Old Testament and Revelation. Revelation quotes or alludes to the Old Testament more often than all of Paul's letters combined. Mm -hmm. There are more quotations or allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation than anywhere else in the New Testament. You want to understand the book of Revelation? You have to know the Old Testament. I'm going to help us with that uh, as we go on. Not so much today, but as we go through all of the different texts. Scholars estimate that as many as 278 out of 404 verses in Revelation contain references to the Old Testament, and that over 500 allusions to Old Testament texts are made in total. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, And here it says, uh, Paul's letters contain 200 allusions to the Old Testament, uh, compared to 500 in Revelation. So if we want to know Revelation, we've got to know the Old Testament. That's the end. Look at that. So I thought I had more to say this morning. But uh, before we jump into Revelation, I want to tell you a couple of things. Um, And we're going to jump in uh, more clearly next week. We'll actually get into the text itself. But I love, I have come to love the book of Revelation. There's a lot of it I don't understand. And what part of my promise to you is when we get to those parts, I will tell you here's some of the ideas. I'm not really sure which one we ought to go with here. I'll I'll be honest with you about the things that I don't know and try and point us to where we can get whatever answers we can find. But we're going to have to live with some tension in not knowing and understanding the whole thing. Uh, Secondly, The book of Revelation, more than any other book in the Bible, is a book of worship. It's a book of worship. If you are struggling to worship God, or maybe if you are hurting in your own life and you're a little angry at God, or a lot angry, or if you just want to know who God is better, this is such a wonderful place to go. And you don't have to understand the whole thing in order to get it out of there. Let me uh, take you again to Revelation chapter four uh, in verse eight, which by the way, this is an allusion to the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter six. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Because we totally understand what that means. Day and night, they never stopped saying what? They sang Reginald's favorite hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is repeated. These, As you're going through this book, something happens and everyone just stops and worships for a while. It's pretty amazing. So many of our songs come from Revelation. Not just holy, holy, holy. I thought I had this written down somewhere, but apparently I don't. Uh, I was talking with Steve a little bit this week. Steve, we're in Revelation. There's so many great Revelation songs, and we're looking forward to doing some of them. As a matter of fact, the song we're going to do in just a couple of minutes, Is He Worthy, that comes right out of this passage as well, out of that uh, uh, thing where the, the elder says, don't weep, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He can open the scroll, and it's seven seals. And in Verse nine, it says, they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Book of Revelation is a book of worship. And finally, the book of Revelation is the reminder that we need, that God, though he delays for a while, so that more will be saved. He is going to bring it to an end one day, to its best end, where evil will finally be called out and revealed for what it is, where the people who have spent their lives in cooperation with it will be judged in the way they deserve, and the people who have called upon God by faith, not because they have deserved God's mercy and grace, but because God is so gracious in giving it because he loves anyone who calls on his name. God will make right all that has gone wrong in their lives. C.S. Lewis uh, does my very favorite job of talking about what it looks like when God makes right everything that's gone wrong. And uh, the book The Great Divorce is my very favorite book uh, about a a tourist uh, who goes to heaven and sees what's there. But uh, probably the last of the Narnia books, The Last Battle, talks about it in my very favorite sorts of ways, where Bree the Unicorn, (laughs) because we talk about unicorns here, uh, says, this is the land that I was always made for. This was my home, even though I never really understood it. The old Narnia, the reason I loved it so much is because it had glimpses and flashes of this place we're in. And that's Revelation 20 through 22. And we'll probably call him Lewis again.